0: How fitting would it be if humanity's most potent weapons of war were used to turn Mars into a fertile green paradise? I tend to be rather openly pro-nuclear and unlike a lot of folks who are, I do not tend to feel a need to add a disclaimer about the danger of nuclear weapons themselves, for the same reason I don't say I like hydrocarbons or solar power except for concerns about flamethrowers or folks roasting ants with magnifying glasses. Now on the one hand nukes are a tool like any other, something I tend to emphasize, and on the other hand they are a tool that unlike a hammer, crush cities, not thumbs when misused. So I do not like to be too blase about the value of nuclear weapons, as that does include enormous destructive potential, but I think folks lock onto that so much that they ignore the other uses a rapid release of massive amounts of compact energy can have. One of those is as a spaceship drive, and as we looked at a few weeks back, the Orion Project for using nukes to accelerate spaceships remains our only currently viable interstellar spaceship drive with no technology. Nukes may endanger wards, but they also offer the key to reaching new ones. Another of those uses for nukes, as we will see today, is terraforming planets, and while nuking Mars to make it livable certainly has some problems which we'll discuss, a lot of the objections I hear are typically grounded in the notion of nukes bad. This even comes from a lot of physicists and mathematicians, and an example that came to mind recently was someone beating up on Elon Musk for suggesting the Nuke Mars approach on the grounds that it involves using, by one calculation, a couple hundred thousand bombs. Which was objected to both on the grounds that that's more bombs than existed at the height of the Cold War and because it would leave Mars an uninhabitable nuclear wasteland. Musk's approach, which is one that predates him by decades, is to melt the ice caps on Mars at the poles by detonating nukes directly over them to superheat them. And basically create a big cloud of water, but more importantly it unlocks all the carbon dioxide gas in those poles too. Now there's multiple methods for nuking Mars to life and we will cover them, but in my opinion this was just a reckless comment attributable to either a dislike for Musk or nukes or both. It also seems to have set off tons of incestuous articles online quoting each other about how it doesn't work, but the math and research of the ejection seems lazy in most cases, For one thing, it wouldn't be accurate to say that nukes are cheap, but most of their cost when you see price tags on them tends to be the delivery system. Missiles and bombers are expensive, uranium, even enriched uranium, is pretty cheap, and even plutonium is pretty cheap when scaled up for mass production. They also scale up in blast size. The scale I just mentioned was done with megaton H-bombs in mind, but bigger ones do not scale up in cost as quickly as they do in blast energy so too they don't scale up and fall out. When a nuke goes off, there's radioactive elements like uranium plutonium that didn't get fissioned, radioactive fission products, and new radioisotopes generated by the vast energies released. Hydrogen bombs, the big powerful nukes measured in the megatons, are generating almost all of their energy by the fission of hydrogen isotopes ignited by smaller fission blasts, so a 100 megaton H-bomb, or fusion bomb, is not generally a thousand times more unfissioned uranium and plutonium fallout as a 100 kiloton fission bomb is. Now the second part of fallout is those radioisotopes made by a collision of gamma rays from the blast with other material, mostly the air and ground. And a one in those fallout models, which are usually considered educated guesses anyway, is a lot more dubious on Mars with its thin air and low gravity. Regardless, one key thing about Fallout that tends to get missed in most fiction on the topic is that when we refer to long-term effects, we mean cancer and radiation poisoning getting people years later. We don't really mean a radioactive landscape decades after the bomb. Very radioactive things tend to be very short-lived things, they're very radioactive because they are rapidly decaying, and that's part of why you can emerge from your Fallout shelter some months or years later, without dying. The other part is that there are radioisotopes all over the place on Earth, including uranium, but they all spread all over and vertically too. Dirt and rock stop radiation very well, but fallout from a recent blast is leaving all those radioactive materials right on the top layer to be absorbed by you, rather than a layer of rock or dirt on top between you and the radioactive materials. Now as we discussed in our other looks at Mars, the regolith it has instead of soil is already toxic so if you want to live on it and grow stuff in it, you need to engage in some serious processing, and initially you are still living in domes and one with floors not just walls or ceilings, where you are going to be processing local regolith to get the toxins out of it and radioisotopes if you like, and probably tumbling the stuff in big algae and bacteria vats to get it turned into soil you dump out the floor of that dome. Key thing there, this nuke the poles approach isn't about Mars magically turning green overnight or on its own once nuked, and all the radioactive fallout, which is pretty minimal in this context anyway, is long since decayed, scattered, and buried. Now a nuke being detonated in a nearly hairless height above the bunch of ice is not generating any long-lived radioisotopes of that water vapor and carbon dioxide that I'm aware of, but even over frozen rock or if buried and blasted so as to maximize debris, We're still talking about an environment folks in domes and wearing suits when outside them could instantly and safely colonize that very same year and which is going to be very minimal within a century, and a century is a lot shorter than most terraforming methods. As to cost, I'm not sure why but in discussion of nuclear terraforming it seems popular to point out that the US spent something like 5 or 6 trillion dollars, depending on inflation calculations, building and maintaining its nuclear arsenal. In reality that figure is less than a tenth of that, when it comes to just building, maintaining, and testing those bombs. This is sort of like calculating the cost of high explosives like TNT by adding in the building and maintenance costs of tanks and cruise missiles, which is rather off-target, pardon the pun, when trying to get a cost estimate on some dynamite for road construction through a mountain pass. It is hard to take articles on the topic seriously when they use that figure since it either means the writer is lazy, doesn't know why this figure is bad, or is intentionally using a flawed example. None of those options inclines one to feel any confidence in the article or author on other matters. Nukes again are not cheap, but it's mostly not about dollars per megaton of explosive yield. The B-83 Gravity Bomb, for instance, has a price tag of about 5 million bucks, and snow of a million of those is only running you 5 trillion dollars, though that probably needs a couple of decades of inflation adjustment. We never had a million nukes, not even close, another example of cost not matching yield, a lot of other bombs, even other simple gravity bombs, cost more but with lower yields, because a lot of the time getting a 100 kiloton bomb on target and inside a hardened bunker gets the mission accomplished when dropping a 10 megaton nuke nearby would not get them and it was never the objective of either side in the Cold War to be able to blow the planet up. So yes, nukes are expensive and dangerous, but no, the cost of building even a million multi-megaton nukes is pretty trivial compared to getting a whole extra planet to call home, especially when you're building simple and big bombs and lots of them. As to dangerous, in terms of making Mars uninhabitable, that's just absurd. Living worlds with complex ecologies and weather tied to each other in feedback loops may be vulnerable to nuclear fallout, a dead planet with no ecology is not. All that said, this is not really the best approach to either melting those caps or using nukes for terraforming Mars. Nukes are a cheap and rapid power supply and something like melting an ice cap is a great example of when they represent a good approach. But, critically, we estimate that even getting all that water and CO2 into the air and keeping it there would not raise the temperature enough to really be habitable by itself. Best guess is about 10 Celsius higher. Alternatively, something like a big solar mirror array focusing light down on those polar ice caps, can be retasked to just add more sunlight and heat to Mars afterwards and on a continuing basis. Now just because you build giant mirrors and lenses for warming Mars does not mean you can't still nuke those poles, but for a context, if we assumed we could deploy a nuke on Mars of one megaton for a mere million dollars, then that means we got 4.2 billion joules per dollar. Also worth noting that you do have to get a nuke there, and at the moment that would mean a billion dollar rocket, but let's hand wave that for now. A couple square meters of shiny aluminum foil and wire frame to make it into a nice solar mirror is presumably costing us less than a dollar, again ignoring the cost of getting it there, and is producing roughly a kilowatt of sunlight pointed down to Mars. So 4.2 million seconds later, it's caught up to that $1 of nuclear bomb, and 4.2 million seconds is just 7 weeks. If you built 10 of those and they stayed in orbit for 700 weeks or 13 years, they would've dumped as much energy down on Mars as that one nuke did and for a whopping 10 bucks. Now that is an oversimplification. This particular approach is about blasting the ice crap quickly with enough energy to melt it, and Antarctica is still a sheet of ice after millions of years of receiving something like a megaton bomb's worth of energy from the Sun every second. And again that's basically the notion here, To detonate bombs over the Martian poles at such a rate of energy release that it's acting as a second sun. To pull that off with a reflective sun mirror would require one with several trillion square meters of surface area, or something like a square solar sail a thousand miles or more on each side, and for each pole, but they are going to keep producing heat long after those poles melt. They also don't have any problem with transport, like crashes while leaving Earth or getting hijacked. They are way easier to manufacture locally too, such as from all the metals in either of Mars' two minuscule moons, Phobos and Deimos. Those two moons are tiny compared to our moon but still contain vastly more metals than such mirrors would require, and we can also move materials off Mars far easier than Earth. See our discussion in Springtime on Mars and Colonizing Mars for more details, but note that this math is going to vary not just by our current technology and space infrastructure but also by the planet you are seeking to terraform. As an example, an Orion drive ship arriving in another solar system might find wars where such nuclear approaches are better suited and be fairly expert and comfortable with building and maintaining nuclear devices. Though as we noted in our episode on that earlier this month, they all likely use hybrid drives employing both nukes and concentrated lighter lasers, so they might be expert on making Mios too. Also everything always depends on the economics and politics of the situation. On the one hand, folks with self-replicating machinery that can turn out massive cheap solar panels from local asteroids, or moons, are likely to go that path. On the other hand, folks with better machines able to self-replicate and make nukes might find that much faster. And on a third hand, since there might be mini-limbed aliens or cyborgs doing this, they might be fleeing a war that nuked itself into oblivion and would not use nukes for terraforming even if it meant taking centuries longer and enduring greater hardship and efforts. And I think that it shouldn't be ignored given a lot of responses that tend to pop up whenever someone suggests using nukes for this purpose. Nukes bad tends to be the core reason, even when supported by data, even good data in some cases. Again, I do not particularly advocate nuking the Martian Poles, but strictly on the grounds that it seems like it would not be an optimal use of effort. I also want to note that as crazy as it sounds to us, setting off billions of dollars worth of nukes every day is still trivial compared to our current planetary economy, and we're talking about building a whole new planet here, and that is our current planetary economy. Any real effort at terraforming or even colonizing Mars is likely to be at least a century out from now, for anything beyond a few small bases anyway and is likely to be in the context of a planetary economy that is as muscular, in terms of industry, to our current one as our modern infrastructure is the 19th century. This is not the only way to use nukes to terraform either though, as I mentioned. Some are not needed for Mars but work well on planets that already have a lot of air, or super hot and deadly atmospheres anyway, like Venus, where you might want to nuke it to rapidly blow the atmosphere off. Comets are another great way to add greenhouse gases and normal air and water to Mars too, particularly ammonia as a source of much needed nitrogen. Comet impacts are hugely more powerful than nuclear bombs, something detractors of the nuke approach sometimes note, but one has to remember that comets aren't exactly sitting around with buttons on them waiting for you to trigger them so they can fly off and hit Mars. If you want one to, you need to find some that are on pre-existing paths that won't need much delta V to shove them into Mars, then you need to give them that delta V. And amusingly, a nuke is a magnificent way to do that, by ablating a ton of material off the comet to act as a rocket plume and change its trajectory. Three notes on this though, First, while it is an excellent way to add energy and heat to a planet while adding material it might need too, like nitrogen, you still have to find enough comets with low enough delta-v, and honestly it's not good odds you're going to find many with under a kilometer per second of change needed. For context, a big comet of about a cubic kilometer of volume massed about a trillion kilograms, and at best you need a million joules for each of those kilograms in terms of blast or rocket to get that kilometer per second of delta V. So we are already talking a couple megatons of nuke or hundreds of millions of liters of rocket fuel to tweak that comet onto an intercept trajectory. Second, that's going to take a long time to get there, potentially centuries. There are only a relative handful of icy comets that aren't out past Pluto or even further, where things will need centuries of travel even if you lucked out on a pathway that was just part of a single orbit, rather than a long corkscrew of mini-orbits to get to Mars. This the polar trick works because you are melting ice, and here we are talking about dumping ice on Mars instead. Now amusingly that's actually fine, things hitting plants are usually doing it with more than that planet's escape velocity since they accelerate as they fall toward the planet in addition to any other speed they had. Motion escape velocity is 5 kilometers per second, so any object falling to Mars is moving at least that fast, and a 5 km per second object massing a kilogram has 12.5 megajoules of kinetic energy, meaning every trillion kilograms of ice or rock slamming that planet is hitting like 3000 megatons of nukes. Also as we said, that it was ice didn't really matter, as that was at least 12.5 megajoules of energy per kilogram. And this is several times the energy needed to not only melt a kilogram of ice, but to further warm and boil it. We went over the scale of this more in Springtime on Mars than several other Mars episodes, but basically you really need to hunt to find enough comets to have any real impact on Mars in terms of making oceans or even atmosphere, like stealing all the ice from the rings of Saturn many times over again. That's okay though because they hit Mars so fast the water will be boiling for the kinetic energy even if you do it slow enough to add your ocean over a century, where a few centimeters of rain every day is needed just to get a modest kilometer of ocean depth in that time. Now air is thankfully a lot lighter, so you only need around a thousandth as much material for an atmosphere, and Mars needs nitrogen but it's got plenty of carbon dioxide and water in those ice caps for atmospheric purposes. And another use of nukes is to bake oxygen right out of the rock itself. People tend to think of rocks as being full of metal and oxygen being something in the sky, but in truth oxygen is the largest component of most rocks and vaporizing a couple kilograms of Martian regolith is going to get you about a kilogram of breathable oxygen. Nukes are fantastic at such vaporization and while rock takes more energy to melt than ice, it's still in that general zone where you might expect megatons of nuke to yield you a lot of oxygen, and water vapor too, there are also a lot of other things you might not want to breathe initially. Not all bad mind you, you could get some good greenhouse gases out that way too. Though similar to a volcanic eruption, you also have the option for cooling a planet, again outside of Mars we would always want the same approach, and we'll discuss using nukes for handling a Snowball Earth scenario in a moment. On some planets you might be able to set off volcanoes too, especially with a superior knowledge of tectonics that we might acquire in centuries to come, and much like nudging a comet, such an application of a nuke might take that already energy-dense item and use it to get orders of magnitude more energy by sending off a volcano or sending a comet or asteroid on a collision course. But orders of magnitude are important to remember for another case we often hear about, which is to give Mars a magnetic field by nuking its core. Now this is an example where nukes really shouldn't be seriously considered, where you drill down to the Martian core to drop nukes in there and get it molten and spinning to generate a magnetic field. The reality is that the mass of a planetary core makes its polar ice caps, or even its entire force kilometer deep of the surface, look minuscule in mass and energy needs, and in this case, as we have discussed before, Rather than using enough nuclear blast to half detonate the planet and utterly wreck the surface, you can just put a fairly modest electromagnet at the planet's L1 point with the Sun. We're talking on the large side for a modern nuclear reactor, or a major hydroelectric dam, and obviously in a place where solar power is abundant and reliable. Orbital magnetic satellites powered by solar also work with this, And simply make way more sense than throwing trillions of nukes down a bottomless hole to melt half the planet and try to spin it. I think folks often assume that just because this is how Earth gets its magnetic field, this is how we need to do it, but to be honest a big molten ball of metal spinning around is a terribly inefficient and impractical way to generate a magnetic field, inferior to methods we've had longer than we've had light bulbs. On the whole, there's a definite case for using nukes to terraform Mars in various capacities, but I don't think this is one of them. Now, speaking of half melted a planet, to close out for the day, while there's probably more cons than pros to a nuclear bombardment of Mars specifically to terraform it, depending on how various technologies roll out in the near future, some planets are better advantage for nuclear terraforming. I pointed out how you might use it to blow atmospheres off planets as an alternative to the slower sun shading method we looked at for Venus in Winter on Venus, and I mentioned importing icy objects with nukes from places like Saturn's rings, and such rings are not unique to gas giants, and you might use nukes for rapid clearance of orbital debris around a candidate planet, blowing all the material down to the ward or away from it. The last one I'll mention though are worlds that might be iced over. We believe there's a high probability that Earth has been totally covered in ice, possibly several times, and this is called a Snowball Earth Theory, and it would seem likely that many worlds we encounter would be in such a state and could be removed from it rapidly by nuclear bombardment and blowing greenhouse gases into the air while thawing out the ice, whose reflective surface was keeping the planet cold. This is probably a very viable method for shocking a world out of an ice age too. A final thought though, we see the potential roles for nukes and terraforming but in most cases we see better paths as well, and yet in all cases we say better mostly in the context of economics or assumptions of better technology. We tend to assume we will have fusion working for instance, in some form other than fusion bombs, and sci-fi tends to always show us getting fusion long before we get self-replicating machines, but either could be as little as a generation away. If the overused quip proves true about fusion energy being 20 years in the future, and always will be, then self-replicating technology might be fairly sophisticated a century from now while fusion is still limited to the lab. Such being the case a small rocket of self-replicators landed on a random asteroid might be able to rapidly transmute it into a giant nuclear-powered machine gun firing megaton warheads by the thousands in which case suddenly this becomes a means of spaceship propulsion, comet propulsion, and planet terraforming that is much, much more attractive. And needless to say, if folks can dump a vial of nanobots on a rock and turn into a nuclear machine gun, it definitely behooves humanity to have a few additional planets to call home, even if we are forging these new worlds with radioactive hellfire. So today's topic is fundamentally about terraforming planets so people can live there centuries from now. And that's the sort of long-term investment that can be daunting, but like a lot of investment, the sacrifices in the short-term can pay off huge in the long-term. That can be even more daunting for folks with their own personal finances too. The risks and decisions are both entirely theirs, but the principle remains the same. Ultimately, it's like so many sacrifices of time and energy almost all of us has done before. The problem with investing though, whether it was the stock market or real estate or even cryptocurrency, was there was always seen as needing a big amount of money and knowledge to get started. It's a scary thing to try to start. I remember knowing investing was important in my early twenties. I was still in my thirties before I was able to get the funds, knowledge, and courage to do it. Technology has been making all that easier though as we see more and more assets moving to make investment easier and friendlier and our newest sponsor, Wealthfront, is leading the way on that shift. With Wealthfront, you don't need tens of thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours of education to get started. You can start small with just $500 and learn as you go, letting them advise you and taking the wheel when and as you want most folks know they should be investing. They don't need to be told it's a good idea, they just need a quick, easy, and safe way to get started. Their app is excellently laid out and intuitive, Sign up is fast, easy, and transparent. I think what I liked about them the most when I was going through their demo was how easy it is to get a very smart, automated investment plan tailored to you in place that you could also slowly take control of as and where you wanted. I do not offer much investment advice, but one that's pretty eternal is knowledge is power, and you should be aiming to take knowledgeable control of your finances eventually, but it's nice to start with a system that competently handles that for you until you feel comfortable taking the reins. And they'll make recommendations but you are in charge, whether you're aiming for retirement or socially responsible investments or buying into crypto, they will help make that a clear and easy process. Use the link in the episode description to get started with Wealthfront and begin building your future today. So we were talking about planet terraforming today and I've been thinking we need to return to our Outward Bound series and cover some of the places we haven't visited yet, and there are tons of them. So this weekend during our livestream Q&A we will be asking for what places you would like us to visit next in the Outward Bound series and we will take the five most mentioned and interesting suggestions and put them in a poll over on our community tab right after that live stream for you to vote on. That live stream Q&A is going to be on Sunday, January 30th at 4pm Eastern Time, and I hope you will join Sarah and I for that to get all your questions answered. After that we will jump into February for a look at the future of solar power. Then we will take a couple episodes to contemplate Kessler Syndrome, the risk of a cascade of orbital debris around Earth and the implications it might have on the Fermi Paradox, as well as other scenarios, natural or artificial, which might imprison a civilization on their homeworld. One other case folks often mention for that are worlds where the gravity is too high to let them send rockets into space, Super Earths, and so the next week after that we'll examine those and how life might evolve on them and how we might colonize them. Now if you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel and hit the notifications bell. And if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and share it with others, and leave a comment below. You can also join the conversation on any of our social media forums, find our audio-only versions of the show, or donate to support future episodes, and all of those options and more are listed in the links in the episode description. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week!